It's my privilege this morning to introduce our speaker for the day. The Reverend Matt Miller is the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute in Greenville, South Carolina. Matt is a graduate of Wake Forest University. He holds a Master of Divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary and a Doctor of Ministry from Erskine Theological Seminary and is currently a PhD candidate at the University of Bristol in England. Matt has faithfully served the church in our area for a number of years. He's previously served as the senior minister of Greenville ARP and is ordained in the PCA. But most importantly, Matt, by God's grace, has been given a lovely wife, Lindsay, and three lovely children, Elise, Davis, and Owen. And I know that you join with me in offering up prayers for Matt as he will be sharing with us from God's word this morning and over the next couple of weeks. So Matt, come, point us to our great Savior this morning. Thank you, Steve, for that very warm introduction. And uh, Steve, you've been so, so kind and generous in all of your communications with me the last couple of weeks, and great to meet you this morning and see some familiar faces out there as well. Um, I've been in Greenville for over 13 years now, and perhaps to my shame, I need to report this is only my second time to Clemson, and it's great to be here with you all. The first time was about seven years ago when I had an invitation to go to a, a, a Clemson game. My alma mater, Wake Forest, was playing, and a friend of mine was friends with, any of y'all remember, a former defensive line co-defensive coordinator named Marion Hobby. Um, he was a, a friend of my friends, and so I got to go to a game in Death Valley and sit with the coaches' families and players' families and afterwards go to the locker room and the coaches' offices and, and hang with them for a while and go back to Marion's house for the rest of that evening. Um, my friend made sure that I was wearing a Clemson sweatshirt and hat for the game, and I may or may not have been wearing a Wake Forest t-shirt underneath. Uh, but you all uh, took, took uh, good care of, of Wake Forest in that game as, as expected, and that was a wonderful day, but it's, it's even a greater privilege uh, to be with you here this morning, Clemson Presbyterian Church, and Lord willing, the next couple of Sundays as well. Um, our text this morning, I, I, I texted Steve uh, on Monday. I said, do you mind if I make a change up? I was planning to preach on the beginning of the Lord's Prayer and on praying in the new year, and the, the more I kind of thought about it, I remembered how often the Sunday that came soon after Christmas, as this one is, was sometimes the sweetest time to reflect on the narrative of our Savior's birth. The, the busyness and kind of demands of Christmas preparations are now past. The presents have been opened. And our hearts can be still before uh, God's word to hear about aspects of, of Christ's birth that God sovereignly arranged for our attention and our adoration and so we're going to do that this morning, uh, turning to Luke chapter 2. And beginning, I'll begin reading in verse 22, just for background and context. But we're going to look especially, or almost exclusively, at verses 36 to 38. And at the less known, but still wonderful life of Anna. And we might call this sermon, Waiting for Christ with Anna, waiting for Christ, with Anna. So if you would, turn with me and hear God's word. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Now 
And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, that is Mary and Joseph, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's go to him now in prayer. Gracious God, we pray that you would make our hearts by your spirit to be fertile soil for the seed of your word, that we might see and behold wondrous things in this account of this unique woman whose life you ordained to be ready to receive and rejoice in your son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. She woke up that morning and prepared to go through the same routine that she'd gone through every day for nearly half a century. Just seven years of marriage was all before she then began to spend the rest of her life mourning the loss of her husband. Likely young at marriage, scholars would guess it would not be surprising at all if she was 14 when she was married. And thus, at the tender age of 21, became a widow. Scholars debate some whether The text is saying that it was 84 years of age that she had lived or 84 years since her husband had died. The latter would certainly make her quite old, at least 105. But either way, she would have been, as Luke reports, advanced in years. A kind of mystery seems to invest this Anna, says one New Testament scholar, a man named Alfred Edersheim. She was indeed a prophetess. She possessed a divine gift 
an ability to see connections between events and God's plan under the light of God's word. And that gift would serve Anna well on this day. As a prophetess, she was respected by by some. As a widow, she was pitied by most. She she lived in Jerusalem, that, that capital city of Judah, and where the pilgrims and Jews from far scattered among the Mediterranean would gather for three annual festivals. The festival was a week when they would come, oftentimes for feasting and rejoicing and family reunions, and large families would gather into Anna's hometown, there to celebrate and rejoice in the Lord's past works and to enjoy the fellowship of family. And one can imagine that those times were especially uh, painful for Anna. If you've ever been single during the holidays, you know that it can highlight that sense of loneliness. In my own way, I experienced that. I was single uh, throughout all of my 20s. I met my, my wife, Lindsay, when I was 31. And I remember well leading Christmas Eve services at my old church. Beautiful, wonderful candlelit services, joy to the world. Then you greet the people as they head out the door, introducing you to their siblings, their children visiting, their grandchildren. And then like that, they're gone. And you're in a dark, empty church, you and the sexton closing it up. And then you head three hours home on I-40 with no one else on the road to meet your family after all of the Christmas Eve festivities have, have finished. But for Anna, in a much deeper and more enduring way, to live in Jerusalem and to see these festivals come and go would have highlighted the full 360 degrees of her loneliness. Of course, her presence in Jerusalem was itself remarkable. Luke gives us this detail that she was of the tribe of Asher. Now, if you know the basics of your Old Testament history, you might remember that the 12 tribes descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. And that under Joshua, these 12 tribes were apportioned their part in Canaan, in the promised land. And then they were united under their king Saul, and then King David. And then came the third king, Solomon. And with his death, his servant, Jeroboam, led something of a revolution against his son and rightful heir, Rehoboam. And in 931, Jeroboam peeled off the ten northern tribes from the southern tribe of Judah and the, the members of the tribe of Levi that lived therein. And from that point on in Israel's history, they became known as the ten northern tribes of Israel, nationally separate from southern Judah. Neither the north nor the south did very well in the eyes of the Lord for all those years, but in the early centuries, the north did far worse. And in 722, the Lord stirred up the dreaded Assyrian Empire, who came in a military campaign against the ten northern tribes and utterly devastated what remained of them and took captive their people into a far-off land and scattered them. And they did become known from that point onward as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Scientists have a name for species that were long thought extinct, and then lo and behold, one turns up. They're not extinct after all. Do you know what they call them? 
They call them Lazarus species. Taken straight from that account in the New Testament of Lazarus, dead, and then Jesus raises him from the dead. One of the more famous recent ones was the Omura's whale, uh, a whale that was long thought extinct until they sighted one off the coast of Madagascar, and they've been learning more about them ever since. In many ways, Anna is something of a Lazarus species, being from the lost tribe of Asher, living and dwelling there in Jerusalem. And it's big news in Luke's gospel because it fits into a couple things he's highlighting. One, as one commentator says, it shows that the lost tribes weren't completely lost after all. But if you know Luke's gospel and read on, you'll remember that Luke highlights lost things that are found. He's the only gospel writer to tell the story of the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And he opens his gospel with a story of a woman from a tribe thought lost, a woman who's about to be found. Of course, being found was what she'd been waiting for all along. Now, this widow, this prophetess of the tribe of Asher, was also something else. She was full of pining. We read that she did not depart the temple. She, don't, she didn't live at the temple, but as you might say, if you grew up in the church, we basically lived in the church. She That could be said of her. But night and day with prayers and fastings, attending to all the morning and evening sacrifices, Anna fixed her eyes on the promises of God's word that were portrayed in these Old Testament shadows of sacrifices and priestly rituals. She would have probably been there a year, year and a half earlier when Zechariah was standing duty that month and went in to the holy place and came out mute and unable to speak. Until then, his son was born, whom he named John, about whom great things were said, that he would prepare the way of the Lord. And there had probably been some rumors and whispers and wanderings ever since, and Anna would have been keenly attending to those things. Psalm 130, verse 5, was likely often on her lips. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. We could make two mistakes when it comes to waiting for things from the Lord. The first is to wait for something that he has not promised us in his word. Uh, in my 20s when I was uh, single, I, could, I often I wanted to be married. In many ways, I was waiting to be married. But I, I, couldn't, I wasn't waiting in the way that Anna was waiting. There was no biblical promise to me of a wife in due time. Sometimes we are waiting for a breakthrough, wanting healing, things that we are called to bring before the Lord, to cast all of our cares and anxieties on him, knowing that he cares for us. But there's this special sense of waiting by faith, trusting that he who has made such grand promises will be faithful to them. And the first mistake we can make when it comes to that kind of waiting is to claim by faith what God has actually not promised. But the second mistake that we can make, and maybe we're even more prone to this in our, in our theological tradition, is not to wait for the things that God has promised. His word remains filled with promises for his people that he promises to fulfill for us. He has his promise to, to build his church. 
that there will never be a day when you'll open the front page of the newspaper and see the church of Jesus Christ is no more. He has this promise that if we abide in his son, we will bear fruit in our short lives. His promise that if as children we ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, he will give us the help of the Holy Spirit in our time of need. Promises for the gifts of peace and of joy. And on and on it goes. But we can make this second mistake of not waiting, not fixing our heart's attention and expectation on those things that God has promised us in his holy word. Now, Anna avoided neither of those mistakes. She steered right through the middle, and she had fixed her heart's deepest longing on God's greatest promise. She was waiting for the Messiah, for the Savior, the one about whom Simeon speaks of as the consolation of Israel, and here it's spoken of as the redemption of Jerusalem. She was waiting for that one first promise to Eve as the seed that would crush the seed of the serpent. Which brings us to the last detail about Anna's background. She was a prophetess, a widow of 84 years of the tribe of Asher, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We're told one more thing, that she's the daughter of Phanuel. Now, Luke, who's into details, being a former medical doctor, he doesn't point this out so that we can distinguish that Anna in Jerusalem from that Anna in Jerusalem. Rather, there's, there's significance in the name. Years ago, a, a friend of mine, a, former, a member of my former church, uh, he was a photographer. And he and his wife, when they had their first child, it was a son. And he told me the name of the son was Ansel. And I thought, you named your son after Ansel Adams, didn't you? He said, I did. Ansel Adams, that famous American photographer with the, the wide lens, black and white pictures of moonrises over New Mexico and Half Dome in Yosemite. You can still get his prints today, or at least a couple of years ago, you could get a shower curtain that had those uh, Half Dome on it. But yes, the name, Ansel. She was the daughter of Phanuel. And Phanuel was Greek for a famous Hebrew name, the name of a significant place. And that place was Peniel from Genesis 32 in the life of Jacob. Jacob, as you remember, was that, that one of the patriarchs who at every fork in the road chose the wrong direction. Yet the Lord kept pursuing him through every wrong choice. And he ends up at Uncle Laban's. He ends up marrying Leah and then finally Rachel. Through, him, through them and through their servants having these 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jacob finally leaves Laban's and as he's journeying back toward home, he comes, he's going to meet his estranged brother Esau whom he had deeply offended years before. And in Genesis 32, Jacob sends his cattle, his, his sheep, his goats, and his family ahead of him, hoping they might appease Esau before Jacob meets him the next morning because Jacob thinks the next morning could be his last. And it's that night that God appears in human form, a theophany, we call it, and like the form of a man. And Jacob wrestles with God, we are told in this mysterious account in Genesis 32. And Jacob refuses to let go until God has blessed him 
and God does. And Jacob names that place Peniel, which means face of God. And it was in Jacob's life a watershed moment. You divide his life in many ways before Peniel, before he had wrestled with God and been blessed by him and estranged from Esau and a life marked by all kinds of wrong turns. And after Peniel, blessed of God, reconciled to his brother. And now the narrative begins to go toward his future sons and these future tribes. And here is a daughter of Phanuel, hearkening back to that place, who is about to see the face of God in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. And it's about to be a watershed moment for her in her life as well. You know, we all have these watershed moments that divide our lives. It's the primary way we divide our lives between before and after. It could be successes, before a great breakthrough in your business, before an athlete winning a championship, before something great happening in your family. More often than not, the older you get, the more they become losses, a tragedy, a goodbye, a diagnosis, some kind of disaster. Anna's life up to this point would have probably been marked by the watershed moment of the death of her husband, a half a century or more before. Up to that point, so many dreams, and after it, living in the shattered wake of them. But this day was about to mark a new watershed moment in her life. At that very hour, Anna saw someone she knew and three people that she didn't. There was Simeon, that old man who hung around the temple so much and had this crazy idea that the Lord had told him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. You could just imagine people saying, Simeon, that sweet man, that sweet yet silly old man. And he was with a man and a woman and a child that Anna didn't know. It would have been a baby boy with dark hair and dark eyes. And Anna's seeing something that she has seen thousands of times before. A young couple with a firstborn son coming to the temple to go through certain rites of purification and to fulfill the custom of the law. But she makes the connection between what sets this child apart from all those others she sees Simeon with the child in his arms, rejoicing that God has indeed fulfilled his promise to him. And she knows he's no silly old man. He's holding in his arms the one that has been promised since the fall of Adam and Eve. And the one that Messiah, the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for through the centuries. And the one that I have been waiting for night and day with prayers and fastings, setting my heart's greatest affection on God's greatest promise. And today I see him. Today I meet him. And at that moment, Anna not only saw who he was, she was also able to see what it meant. With her mind and heart just filled with the scripture, she was able to play forward how this is going to play out. Now most of us probably haven't noticed it yet, 
The days now are a few minutes longer than they were on Monday. Is anyone else here really into when the winter solstice happens? Anyone here maybe have what they call seasonal affective disorder, whatever name they want to give it? I'm a proud member of that group. And fall is rough, especially around October. As the days get shorter, your vitamin D goes down, you just start losing some of your energy, your zest for life. You're a little more prone to anxiety and ruminating. And if you have friends like this, you, you, you count down the days to Christmas, but you really count down the days to the winter solstice <laughs> because that's the shortest day of the year, and that marks the day that you've made it. And the next day is a few seconds longer. And the next day, a minute after that. And you see where this is going. In your mind, you're able to play forward that right now all of those nutrients that have been storing up in the roots of the bushes and the trees are going to soon begin journeying up the trunk and to the stems. And in March, we're going to see the first spring blooms and blossoms. And they're going to begin parading their way toward full-blown summer in all of its green glory and its sunsets near 9 o'clock. And it's only been one minute, but it signals to you that something has been set in motion. And it's a great thing to consider. Anna saw just one baby, but it signaled to her that something had been set in motion and she knew how this was going to play out. First, a baby born of a virgin, then a life anointed with the Spirit full of wisdom and righteousness and mercy. Then a climactic sacrifice foretold in Isaiah 53, bearing our griefs and pains and the Lord laying on him the iniquity of us all and his soul making a sacrifice, an offering for sin. And then the coming into possession of an indestructible life and inheriting the throne of David, never to abdicate it. And then the government resting on his shoulders and of the increase of its righteousness and peace, there shall be no end. And all of it moving finally to Isaiah 66 and the promise of a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall be remembered no more. When Anna saw that baby boy, she was able to see that all of this was now set in motion. Her heart leapt with joy. She, she raced out of the temple as fast as her old knees could carry her. And we're told that she spread the word, the good news, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. All that in these three verses. Thousands of people had lived in and around Jerusalem during Anna's time. But we hear of almost none of them. Simeon, Zechariah, Elizabeth. Mary and Joseph, when they come, what makes Anna's life something that was important enough to God, not only to design it in the details, but to make sure it became part of the account of his son's birth that would be recounted eventually in all the nations of the world for all of history until his son returned? Well, I have 12 things for us to consider. I'm just kidding. It's 42 degrees. How about we just consider one? Anna's life 
And this is patently obvious. It did not go as planned. The dreams that she had as a young woman turned out not to be God's design. And on the face of it, the life that she lived was so much harder than the life that she had hoped for. But she didn't know all that God was doing. She could not have foreseen then that all of the details, the good and the bad, the wonderful and the difficult, would make sense at a point in history when the Christ would come. And then things even about her life before she was born, her her heritage, her tribe, her father's name, all of these would come together to be this beautiful ornament on the arrival of the incarnate Son of God. John Piper has said somewhere that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you might be aware of three of them. And so it was for Anna. And so it is for us. There's 9,997 other things, we might say, that God is doing in your life right now and they will only make sense in light of his plan, his grand plan. They'll be fully revealed at the end of time. And what is it? About 150 years after Anna, there was a a, a Christian writer, strange, eccentric writer, a man named the Shepherd of Hermas. And in one of his writings in the second century, he asked this question. He said, why did God create the world? And he answered, weaving together threads from Genesis 2 and Mount Sinai and the prophets and Jesus' miracles and Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19 to 21. And he says, the reason God created the world was that the Father in his love for his Son wanted to give his Son a great gift. And the great gift to give his Son would be a bride. And so from within the Trinitarian Council came forth the plan of creating a world with people who would bear his image, who would go far from him. But in pursuing them and winning them back, God would display all of his attributes in the full color of all of his character, wisdom, power, goodness, mercy. In the end, to prepare a bride that would be ready to be presented in splendor to his son that he could take to himself as the bridegroom for eternity. And that's where the book of Revelation leaves us. Our lives will generally not go as planned, especially if you are a Christian, because the things that we would plan for our lives do not match the glory of what God is planning that we would be a part of his gift to his son, that we would be a bride prepared through hardship and trial and loss, as well as provision and gifts and blessings to be given on that great day to his son. If we are willing to accept that that is God's purpose for us, We will not kick and protest quite so much when his plans prove different from ours. But we also have then this call to wait. Because just as so much of Anna's life did not make sense, 
until that day Christ came. So with you and I, so much of our lives will remain a mystery until that day when Christ comes again. And then we will see not only the three things that God had been working all along, but all of the 10,000 things and how everything in our lives related to everything he was doing everywhere to give a bride to his son. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this woman and that in your great mercy, your heart would be for her and that in your perfect providence, you would design the years of her life so that we, on the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, would read of her life and say, God is great. Lord, if we are, are hurting this year for the things that we have lost, the things that have been thrown into confusion and darkness, and the things that now seem uncertain as we look ahead to 2021, would you give us a spirit of courage and a spirit of waiting that we might, like Anna, wait for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, rejoicing in the fact that you are preparing us for him forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.